It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at 3cr.org.au. Both the BZE Community Show and this show are now also available on iTunes and Stitcher. So please subscribe and rate us to help others find the shows. My name is Kay Winnigal and today I have more exciting news. Just last week, the Australian Federal Government announced that it has taken on the Northern Territory Sun Cable Project as a major project and is fast-tracking it to help with jobs and investment during the COVID crisis. For those who haven't listened to our earlier shows, the Sun Cable Project, which is backed by Michael Cannon-Brooks and Andrew Forrest, is currently proposing a massive 10-gigawatt solar array battery storage facilities of up to 30 gigawatt hours and a high voltage direct current subsea cable of 3,750 kilometres. So the Northern Territory renewables scene is booming, but what is happening in neighbouring Western Australia? Ray Wills, the Managing Director at FutureSmart, joins us to tell us the latest. Hi Ray, thanks for joining us. G'day Kay, thanks for having me. Ray, let's start with you. People's appetite for change is at least partly driven by personality factors. You've worked with many companies over several decades to transform the way they operate, particularly around technology and sustainability. What is your attitude to change and how have you learned to drive change despite all the barriers? Yeah, look, there's, there's a natural resistance within an organisation that believes that it's doing well, that if it keeps on doing exactly what it's doing, it will continue to do well. That seems to be rational on the surface of it, but of course, everything around you changes, so therefore you need to be ready to change with that momentum of change that that others are generating. How do you engender change? By making sure that the opportunities are visible, by making sure that the change that is coming is non-threatening in a a sense of career, in a sense of uh, personal experience. Uh, What you need to do, of course, is to embrace those that can tackle the change with you to encourage them to understand that the change you're bringing are going to be positive uh, for them, for their organisation, for their business. It does seem at the moment that the changes are inevitable now. We're seeing so many new projects coming up with the Northern Territory $22 billion Sun Cable project, which is one of a number of proposed mega projects that are looking at the renewable energy export market and to support increased manufacturing and industrial demand in Australia. Western Australia, which has the sun, the land, the wind, the tidal rivers, the workforce, should have similar projects in the pipeline. And in fact, the International Energy Agency presented a hydrogen roadmap report to the G20 meeting last year in which it cited a Pilbara project. Can you tell us about that project? 
Yes, certainly the, the, the CPW project in the Pilbara looking to build now up to 15 gigawatts of generation, specifically to not only bring energy into the Pilbara itself where it could be used, but there's obviously much more than the four to five gigs that that area can currently consumes. So therefore, there's a big surplus of energy and the intent to, to convert that to hydrogen. I think like the sea cable project out of the Northern Territory, it's equally big, or this one's bigger, but uh, with a different export medium, uh, whereas the sea cable project is looking to take electricity down DC cables, undersea cables, uh, this one is looking to ship hydrogen. I think one challenge with any mega project doesn't matter, or shall we call them giga projects because that's what they are, it doesn't matter how technically feasible they are, they've got to be commercially feasible but also they've got to overcome that barrier of people that don't necessarily want to welcome change to the new. When Elon Musk first started talking about his gigafactory back in the early 2010s, he was then talking to Panasonic about building a 35 gigawatt factory at a time when Panasonic themselves only made 7 gigawatts of batteries. And I'm quite certain that those people at Panasonic were thinking, who is this crazy man? What Musk has demonstrated is that these large giga projects with the right tenure of people, with the right investments uh, and with the right destination in mind in terms of the growth of the market are entirely feasible. So therefore, the, the Pilbara Hydrogen Project has uh, logic in terms of the technologies available for generation. The markets are available at the other end for consumption of electricity and energy. The question is, how do you get that energy to them in what form? And the solution that they've chosen, of course, is, is hydrogen. And there's considerable debate around right now as to whether hydrogen will be the right vehicle for transport later in the decade. And, of course, therefore, the Sun Cable Project has, um, has chosen to take electricity out, not hydrogen. Some of the challenges there are, are, are economic. Um, the real question for hydrogen will be, can you actually bring down the cost of production? The expectation is with a project of this size, it will create its own demand for technology and so therefore bring down production costs using the uh, rights, rights law as far as diminishment of costs are concerned. And also in terms of the question of conversion of energy efficiency, hydrogen, we know uh, has some challenges in terms of uh, energy efficiency and conversion, and, and so uh, there's also need to meet that. But there's good time to do it. Uh, this is just like Elon Musk in, in 2011 and 12 talking about his gigafactory uh, and the scale of it uh, were about the same sort of time frame. So as long as those challenges are met commercially and technically, there, there should be no reason to expect this project not to go ahead. And the financial time is 2025, so there's at least five years until we get to the point of decision of uh, moving the project forward. CSIRO just today released a report stating that green hydrogen could be used to reduce emissions within the aviation sector within the next five years. You're talking about 2025, with a complete transition to hydrogen-fuelled flights possible by 2050. It, it really means that WA should be scaling up its work in the hydrogen area. Yeah, look, I, I think one of the challenges is the video uh, beta max argument. Right now, the thing that's winning the race in terms of conversion of energy sourcing and, and energy delivery is electrical storage. And again, Musk is leading that charge and, and electrical storage therefore has actually a 10-year advantage over hydrogen. It's got a bigger advantage than that because virtually everything that we do in this century 
will be driven by mobility and our ability to be mobile will be driven by our ability to have batteries. And those batteries will be uh, everything from our watch devices all the way through to uh, phone and tablet size to all the way through to motor cars. And then ultimately, in my view, all the way through to both sea-based transport and also air transport. So the question for hydrogen in that same scenario is, will it compete with its ability to deliver both on time and on budget with batteries who are also competing to deliver into the same space? And the answer is, if they try hard enough, if they work hard enough, if the right investments are made, yes, that, that can be the outcome. My own view is that I think that uh, in terms of transport, we'll see storage, electrical storage, actually competing more strongly. We're already seeing that in the land transport sector, simply with motor cars, and that will naturally extend an advantage to all forms of land-based transport, including trucks and trains. What can happen next then is then the question of can hydrogen step into this other market, the, either the seaborne market and or the airborne market? And the challenge that it has is that it won't have had base camp zero uh, of the land-based market. And rights law tells us the more of something you make, the cheaper it gets. Uh, and the thing that we're making more and more of ad nauseum right now is batteries. So therefore, the, the cost curve is actually on electrical storage's side. Now, there's plenty of time, there's a decade to go. Uh, and so therefore, hydrogen is absolutely worth pursuing. But my, my view at the moment is that electrical storage certainly has uh, a number of advantages in terms of manufacturing growth and product delivery. In terms of payload for aeroplanes, I would imagine that hydrogen would be a, possibly a better bet than batteries at this stage because their weight is quite significant. But, of course, as you yeah, point that, out, the development that, is... Yeah, is, that, is, that assumes that batteries are static. And, of course, battery density improves at the rate of 6% per annum. Uh, that means in, in about eight years, they'll be half the weight. And eight years after that, they'll be half the weight again. So the question then is, is that sufficiently small enough and light enough to, to drive flight? And the answer is the only working commercial flights in the world today uh, that are not fossil fuel driven are battery driven. So there are already planes in the air with batteries in them. There are some test planes in the air with fuel cells, hydrogen fuel cells in them, but they're not yet proven and, and allowed to operate commercially, whereas electrics is already operating commercially. So in Western Australia, that, that project that you've just been talking about is known as the Asia Renewable Energy Hub is about yep. a $30 billion investment and is potentially going to generate about 50 terawatt hours of electricity a year. But as well as that, Western Australia is also committing to another massive new hydrogen production facility in Calberry or near Calberry. Can you tell us about that? Uh, again, I know less about the Calberry uh, installation, but what's what's happening uh, around is that there's also some trialling going on with hydrogen. So probably the, the first step I'd actually point to is Horizon Power's announced project in Denham, where they intend to build new generation capacity that's a, a solar diesel hybrid system that will also look to put onto it a hydrogen pilot plant for use, for, tri for, for experimental use within a working grid. And I think in terms of delivering these mega projects, first of all, we need to be able to show commercially that they work. With battery storage, we, we can, you know, Hornsdale battery, we can show battery storage works and therefore a whole pile of people are confident about building even more batteries. 
Uh, with hydrogen, we still don't actually have integrated working operational systems that are in- integrated with everyday operations. Uh, so that's what Horizon Power is looking to do. And the same is true, of course, of the Sun Cable project, which a couple of years ago when we were up there in Darwin and the project was named then, it didn't seem that feasible. But now the federal government is actually fast-tracking it as a major project, so it's becoming more feasible as time goes on. And I'd imagine the, the hydrogen developments may go along similar lines. Yeah, look, the Sun Cable project is going to break a, a few new first uh, world's largest solar farm, world's largest battery installation, world's largest, longest undersea right. cable. So, you know, all of those things right now are technically challenging, but they're actually not talking to about a build until, you know, late, later this decade, 2028. So there's an awful lot of improvement that can happen in that time. If they were to build it today, they'd be taking a large share of, of global production of, of 90 gigs and it'd be 10% of global production if they were to build it today. But by the time we get to 2028, they'll probably take 25 to 3% of global production of solar panels. So the whole world is, is gaining momentum. The right time to build these giga scale projects is a few more years away when the price of solar by that point is, is very likely to be under 10 cents a watt. And, you know, the objective then will be you can build these large-scale plants. There will be others announced along the way uh, in the same way that we've seen battery production moved from 200 and 300 gigawatt hours of batteries produced every year uh, for all devices, you know, mobile cars, gaming stations, all the things that, that get used by. In 2020, that production is now over 500 gigawatt hours. And within a few years, it'll be over a terawatt hour of battery production. That'll, that'll ramp up. So that gives the Sun Cable project some absolute advantages in the context that they know that that battery production is scaling up. Uh, they know that the technology for batteries is not only improving, but the cost is coming down. And so that's while it's in the future, it's some certain certainty in the future. At the same time, we need, still need to worry for hydrogen about more economic hydrolyzers or, or steam reforming or we need to see a breakthrough in, in that forming technology to produce hydrogen to bring the cost down. Now, can we expect that they'll happen? Yes, we can because, you know, with investment and with further investment, that, that momentum will be produced. Things are moving very fast in the renewables area, so it sounds quite exciting. Western Australia yeah, as, as a whole can seem quite remote from those of us on the East Coast particularly during the border closure currently, but some parts of it are extremely remote. Are there any opportunities in those remote regions to build similar investments, such as the Sun Cable Project, to supply renewable power to other countries, say, for example, Indonesia? Well, certainly uh, the Sun Cable Project names uh, in Indonesia as a possible destination past its cable. I think one of the things that... uh, We've got pretty excited with renewables over the last 10 years. You know, we've seen a terawatt uh, of capacity installed with solar and wind around the world. That's that's pretty exciting number in itself. It'll be an even more exciting number at the end of this decade when we're up at two and three and four terawatts uh, of, of renewables. So, again, the, the rate of installation is accelerating. The rate of installation is not going to slow down. And we'll see the, the decade that was 2010 to 2020 greatly uh, overshadowed by the decade of 2020 to 2030 when we install massive new renewables projects which start to deliver that generation capacity and replacing fossil fuel capacity as we've seen 
in the most recent data with coal capacity on the planet now reaching net negative growth for the first time. So we're seeing an important transition. We're seeing that transition happen actually in a relatively short time for the energy market. And uh, that's, that's growing and changing the way we, we, can, we think about what services can be delivered from renewables. If you've just tuned in, we're talking to Ray Wills from Future Smart. Indonesia does rely on coal-fired power stations. So I would imagine that other undersea cable services with renewable energy could emanate from Western Australia as well as the Northern Territory to, to look after those markets. Yeah, and of course, um, Indonesia is an island nation. So there's, there's plenty of separate destinations for that to be delivered to. So, you know, there's, there's a good viable market there that, that Australia could readily supply via undersea cable. Uh, and ultimately, if, if hydrogen does prove its merit, which everybody's aiming to do, then also uh, potentially through hydrogen. So not only do you have these mega hydrogen projects to look forward to, but you've also got the community batteries that the McGowan government continues to roll out as part of its energy transformation strategy. Can you tell us what this energy transformation strategy is? Yeah, well, the, the um, Energy Minister, Bill Johnson, has led a process for uh, reform for distributed energy installation in the state. There's a recognition that we need to uh, do some root and branch reform of, of our energy systems. And parts of that work has been done in terms of looking at how do we increase the installation of solar, both for rooftop solar in, in Western Australia, where we're Actually, solar is now the single largest source of generation for energy in the state based on rooftop installation. There's the installation of utilities scale. Solar is, is lagging but starting to accelerate in itself. But alongside that, as we see increased penetration of renewables into the grid system, we're going to reach a point where we really do need to have backup systems to, to allow that renewables to not destabilise the grid. The AMO have, have talked about this. Uh, people have taken them literally saying, thinking that that destabilisation is happening now. But the answer is that it will start to happen when we get to 50 and 60% penetration. We're currently around about the 30 to 40% mark. So it's sometime soon, but it's not yet. And it means we've got time to consider ways in which we might better manage the intermittent production of renewable energy. So the community battery trial that uh, the Minister has brought about subsequent to his, his announcement of his reform process is in part to uh, start to address some of those questions. At this point, only at a pilot scale, you know, they're, they're in no way comparable to, to the Tesla battery. They're, they're all, you know, um, less than 100, 100 kilowatts or a couple of hundred kilowatts in, in some cases. And they're trials in communities for distributed energy generation. Energy generation. So uh, the outcome of that should hopefully be some really good data over the next 12 months, which will then feed straight back into those doing the, the trials and its Western power in the, the Southwest interconnected system. Uh, Horizon Power have also got their own trials going on in their uh, regional areas of WA, uh, and, and those trials will help inform government about the next steps for growth in, in solar rooftops and also solar installed commercially as well as the utility-scale projects, but they're, as an aside, in, in effect, because the, the rooftop stuff is the biggest. And we'll see, uh, hopefully, that that data will simply underscore the fact that, one, batteries work. We already know that batteries work because of Hornsdale and many others. But secondly, uh, we'll see if they've been commercially effective in the locations they've been used. One of WA's advantages is, 
that Western Power and Horizon Power are government-owned utilities. Uh, yes, so government trading enterprises, 100% owned by government. There are, of course, privately owned generators on the grid in the southwest, but uh, the networks are owned through Western Power as as the network and poles operator, and much of the generation arises from Synergy, which, of course, is now a merger of Synergy and the old Verve, the old generating government generating unit, but that's now a, as one. It does give the minister a lot more control over making decisions of transition, whereas a private operator may be inhibited by uh, decisions of shareholders and uh, shareholders' returns. The, the government can make a decision, albeit still somewhat unpopular if it, if it re- results in a loss of revenue to Treasury, but the governments can make a harder decision there about what is best for the community, what is, what is going to serve the community best in the future. And Energy Minister Bill Johnston has, has quite a number of times stated that the McGowan government will take steps to ensure that we're, we're seeing a lower emissions energy generation system and doing that through renewable energy investments, both through utility scale and also allowing those people that want to to continue to invest behind the metre. So Western Power has, I think, five different batteries, one in Bustleton, one in Ellenbrook, Meadow Springs, Mandurah and also Kalgoorlie. Are they all part of the Swiss, the um, Southwest Interconnected system? Yes, so the Swiss is is defined as Western Power's territory. So all the poles and wires that, that deliver power basically from Kalbarri to uh, Albany and with a big dog leg out to Kalgoorlie to the east, all of that Southwest Interconnected system is, is Western Power. Um, so uh, one of the challenges for Western Power investigating fringe of grid Problems looking at intermittency along our long dangly lines that, that lead hundreds of kilometres to a few farms and a few towns. Uh, what we're looking at there is is the opportunity to cut off the dangly lines and actually have standalone power systems. But under the old old legislation, in that circumstance, uh, if you cut the lines off, then that suddenly became horizon power territory. Uh, functionally, that could cause some issues just in terms of serviceability. And, and also create uh, some challenges for the way that some people look at it as to not wanting to cut off a piece of territory. So with reform to the legislation and the regulations that uh, surround Western Power, we've been able to start looking at cutting those wires. And now there's, there's quite a number of places uh, where we recognise that the wires could be removed and replaced with standalone power systems or renewable energy systems and batteries. And in the beginning with diesel backup, but my view is that that will be quickly proved to be unnecessary. Uh, I think there will be sufficient, there should be sufficient capacity with a solar battery system to be standalone. As we get that data in and as that circumstance is shown to be true or not, we will see uh, additional pressure to cut wires, not just because sometimes wires run across paddocks and, and through forests and, and have the risk of starting fires, especially through storm events but also because the cost that's associated with managing fringe of grid and large dangly wires means that you're, you're better off economically to, to get rid of them and replace them with standalone, which is one of the things that will make Treasury happy. And I understand that that's not just a statewide issue, that's an Australia-wide issue that the Australian Energy Market Commission is looking at and has to make that regulatory change. Is that correct? Uh, yes, yeah, so so ultimately there, there's, there will be reform because, of course, uh, energy code is is all uh, generally state-based, uh, so all of the states need to start uh, mirroring that and need, taking advice from the, uh, the, the market regulator. 
Um, and, you know, the, in terms of what's going on there, I think, again, WA uh, uh, is taking the lead on, on these standalone power systems, not just Western Power, but also Horizon Power. Where one of our towns, uh, one of the Horizon Power towns in Esperance, uh, we've already taken off um, a dozen comp customers off of a 70-kilometre uh, feeder line that's been removed. Uh, and those all those farm customers at the end of that feeder line are now also running on standalone power. So it's relevant to the, the main grid. Uh, it's also relevant to the regional grids and the, the islanded grids of, of the state uh, and, of course, relevant right across Australia. Uh, and so the learnings that are going to come from this uh, will be very closely watched by others. Uh, and certainly um, uh, I, I'm, I'm very well aware that both Horizon Power and Western Power regularly get queries from the East Coast about uh, how these things are progressing. More than 50% of all the overhead distribution network in Western Australia is dedicated to servicing about 3% of the population. I guess it means that it's more imperative that Western Australia heads down that track, isn't it? Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, you know, net network costs tend to be a large share of an energy bill wherever you are, but it's certainly true in Western Australia where around half the bill is, is a network cost. If we can eliminate uh, or, or greatly reduce those network costs as a consequence of these savings, then that's not only good news for the taxpayer as, as the person footing the bill for that, but also lower cost energy is going to be good for everybody in terms of both mums and dads and also business growth. And, you know, it's my view that we should see downward pressure on pricing happening in the second half of this decade significantly as, as we see these reforms, to the, particularly to the network, take hold. Well, it's wonderful to see that Western Australia is making the most of its unique advantages over the rest of the Australian states and territories, thanks to its physical and regulatory separation from the NEM, the National Electricity Market, and optimising the renewable energy installations. Ray, we've Indeed. run out of time. Where can our listeners find out more about this information? Look, I think government has been very good at sharing both the reform process and if you Google that... Uh, energy reform process for WA, it will certainly come up. There's, there's a good website for it. The, the minister is very communicative and uh, is putting out regular press releases on this. And to, I'm pleased to say that they're substantive press releases that are actually saying something. Uh, so congratulate him on that. But, uh, I, I think additionally, both Western Power and Horizon Power have uh, uh, detail on their websites. So certainly uh, get along and uh, have a look there. Uh, and uh, for those that want to hear snippets from time to time, um, they can discover them by following me on Twitter. Great. That's fantastic. Thanks very much for joining us today, Ray. No worries. Thanks for having me, Kay. We've been speaking to Future Smart Managing Director Ray Wills. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Previous episodes of the show are available on iTunes and Stitcher, so please subscribe to help others find the shows. If you enjoy the program and can donate to help cover airtime costs and keep us on the air, please go to the BZE website and click on the Donate button. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to you joining us again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.